Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. No formal NATO invitation for Ukraine in Vilnius. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Monday that NATO will not offer a formal invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance at the upcoming summit in Vilnius that will be held from July 11th to the 12th. So we've been hearing this, uh, you know, in the lead up to the summit that they're going to give Ukraine some sort of new guarantee. Ukraine wants an invitation to join NATO after the war. We've seen a lot of comments from U.S. officials that that probably won't happen. And now here's the head of NATO uh, saying that as well. He said this at a joint press conference with Schultz, uh, the German chancellor in Berlin. Stoltenberg said, quote, at the Vilnius summit and in preparations for the summit, we're not in discussions to issue a formal invitation, end quote. Stoltenberg said that the alliance was looking to bring Ukraine closer, but did not specify what new commitments NATO might offer. He said, quote, what we are discussing is how to move Ukraine closer to NATO and the ongoing consultations. I'm not in a position to preempt the outcome of those consultations, end quote. So both Stoltenberg and Schultz reaffirmed the promise given to Ukraine at the 2008 Bucharest summit that it would eventually become a member, but Ukraine has never been given a clear timeline on when that might happen. This is Schultz. He said, quote, the Bucharest decision remains and we need to focus on the task at hand. We need to support Ukraine to defend its country's integrity and sovereignty, end quote. So while most NATO members agree that Ukraine cannot join the alliance while it's fighting a war with Russia, they're still expected to announce some sort of new support for Kiev. I've been covering this a lot, so I won't get too into it, but at least it looks like now, because there was a lot of reports initially that a lot that some NATO countries, you know, specifically the Eastern European countries, were really pushing to give Ukraine some sort of clear roadmap to membership, which would have been hugely provocative to Russia. Um, the issue is they have no idea when this war is going to end, and they're prepared to, you know, keep supporting this open-ended conflict. So they can't give a promise when they have no idea, you know, how long this thing's going to drag out for. Um, but that's just where we're at now. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, there's going to be more updates on this until we finally figure out what they're going to do at Vilnius. Whatever sort of support they announce, it's going to be, uh, you know, provocative to Russia as, you know, their main motivation. One of their main motivations for invading was Ukraine's alignment with NATO. All right. The next one here, the New York Times reports that Western countries have sent broken weapons into Ukraine. So the Times reported on Monday that the U.S. and its Western allies have shipped weapons to Ukraine that were broken and needed repair or were only good to be used for spare parts. The report also said that Ukraine has not received weapons from contractors that it has paid for. As of the end of 2022, the Ukrainian government paid over $800 million for arms contracts that were completely or partly unfulfilled. Sources told the New York Times that some of the unfulfilled weapons had been delivered or refunds were issued, but they said hundreds of millions of dollars were paid for weapons that never materialized. The report said that the most valuable undelivered contracts were between 
Ukrainian defense ministry and state-owned Ukrainian arms companies. So they're getting stiffed by their own uh, arms companies in Ukraine. I'm sure that's you know them trying to dip into some of this aid money that they've been getting. Uh, Ukraine has also had issues with contractors in other countries. According to Ukrainian government documents, Kiev paid $19.8 million to the Ultra Defense Corporation, which is an American arms dealer based in Tampa. They paid them to repair 33 damaged howitzers that were provided by the Italian government. The document said that the 13 that 13 of the howitzers were shipped to Ukraine after being repaired, but then Ukraine said they were not suitable for combat missions. Although the CEO of this defense company claimed that each howitzer worked when they were delivered and blamed Ukraine for not maintaining them. So they've had a little back and forth, but Ukraine is saying that they did not intend to complete the job they're saying that this company ripped them off and they complained to the pentagon's inspector general about the issue and he is investigating the matter and there are also multiple examples of military equipment being pulled from u.s military stockpiles that were not in good condition there was one story in this report about a u.s army unit based in kuwait that had 29 humvees that they were ordered to send to ukraine and the leader of the unit said they were all good except for one that needed some repairs. But then it turned out that 26 of them were in need of repairs. So they just got the, you know, they didn't get the straight story about these Humvees. So there's a lot of stories like this. Uh, the same unit was supposed to send howitzers, but they were all in, you know, really bad condition. And apparently still Ukraine, you know, some of these damaged weapons are being actually shipped to Ukraine and they get them and they're not usable. And then they use them for spare parts. Um, so, you know, when you're trying to ship all this money, you know, uh, all these weapons in, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons, you know, um, they're going to get some some secondhand stuff, a lot of secondhand stuff that might not be in good shape. All right. The next one here, a Belarusian coup plotters train in Poland. So a group of Belarusian exiles is receiving training in Poland to prepare for a day when they return to Belarus to take on the government of President Alexander Lukashenko. And this was reported on by the Times, uh, the Times of London, that is, on Sunday. So the Times spoke with Belarusians who were training in a field behind a business park in Poznan, Poland. The training was organized by BIPOL, which is a group of former officers from Belarusian security services that was formed after the 2020 presidential election in Belarus, and the protests that followed. The elections saw Lukashenko win another term, but the results were rejected by opposition leader Svetlana Sikhanouskaya. She has a tough name to pronounce. And her supporters, so uh, she rejected it. Her supporters rejected it. They say the vote was rigged. The U.S. and the E.U. also rejected the results, and they increased sanctions on Belarus, and that really pushed Lukashenko closer to Putin, obviously. Uh, so Sihanus Kaya, she fled Belarus and is currently based in Lithuania. The exiled opposition has taken credit for attacks inside Belarus since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, an advisor to Sihanus Koya uh, said, you know, when there was that attack that on a Russian spy plane in Belarus, he kind of took credit for the attack, saying that Belarusian partisans were involved, you know, the opposition 
was involved in hitting this Russian spy plane, although the Discord leaks showed that the U.S. believes rogue agents of the Ukrainian SBU were responsible for that attack. I'm sure it's possible that both elements were involved. Uh, but this training session for exiled Belarusians is the first of its kind in Poznan, Poland, but the leader of that BIPOL group said that other groups have been training in Poland for months, other groups of Belarusians with recruits numbering in the hundreds. So last year, this BIPOL group claimed that 200,000 people signed up to support their victory plan. Uh, who knows if that's really true, if they have that many people. And they said, including, you know, out of those 200,000, 5,000 were willing to conduct sabotage operations in Belarus. Uh, in comments to the Times, Sihanas Koya, who... Again, she's the exiled opposition leader. She kind of hinted that, you know, these Belarusians that are exiled are waiting for their moment to, I guess, try to attack Lukashenko's government. She said, quote, we're in safe mode like a computer. Our main task is to protect people and keep them where they are, end quote. So the U.S. has backed her since the 2020 elections, since she fled to Lithuania. The U.S. threw their support behind her. And again, rejected the election results. The U.S. currently doesn't have an ambassador to Belarus, but when they did, she didn't go to Belarus, but she went to Lithuania to meet with this opposition leader. So the U.S., you know, that's a strong show of support for them. And last year, uh, she went to Washington, D.C. and met with U.S. officials who ensured their full support for the Belarusian opposition. So, you know, if who knows, you know, if this group is really anything formidable that the Lukashenko government is going to have to worry about. But just the fact that they're openly training for this big, uh, you know, coup plan or insurgency, whatever you want to call it, against the Lukashenko government, definitely very provocative. And, you know, just based on what the U.S. has been doing, you know, what their Belarus policy has been, you know, you would assume that the U.S. would would back be backing you know, this armed uh, group against the Lukashenko government, which now has nukes because uh, Russia deployed uh, nuclear weapons there. Uh, all right. The next one here, neo-Nazi cross-border raids in Russia raise the stakes. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. So a neo-Nazi aligned militant leading cross-border raids into Russia using American military equipment told the Washington Post that his forces were escalating tensions with Moscow. So an al another militia is preparing a new constitution for Russia after it helps overthrow the Putin government. That's their idea. So while Kiev denies public support for the militia, behind the scenes, Ukrainian officers are seeking to expand the operations. So this is the Russian Volunteer Corps led by Denis Kaputstin, also known as Denis Nikitin is another name that he goes by. So he's the leader of one of these two paramilitaries that's been conducting operations inside Russian territory. Uh, in a recent interview, he said, quote, these are full scale attacks on the territory of the Russian Federation while it is under the occupation of the Kremlin regime. The stakes are getting higher and we are elevating them, end quote. So the Washington Post report mentions that members of the Russian Volunteer Corps have extremist ideas, including its leader. Uh, they didn't uh, mention, you know, that they are openly neo-Nazi, which uh, many of their members are. And, you know, they kind of downplayed that in this Washington Post report. 
which isn't really a surprise because that's the way they've been kind of covering this stuff. Um, but in the photo published in the post, you see uh, Nikitin or Kaputskin, whatever his name is, he's sitting next to this other guy. And if you zoom in, he has a, uh, I can't really zoom in, but he has a black sun, which is a neo-Nazi symbol. It's not this one right here. If you're watching the video, it's next to it. It's hard to see, but if you zoom in, then you could see it. Um, so these are the people that are, you know, we're dealing with here. And these are the ones that invaded, you know, launched this cross-border raid in Belgrade or launched several of them. But there was the one where they were very clearly armed with U.S. Uh, armored vehicles. So, you know, this is definitely a big um you know, risk of escalation if they keep these attacks up, you know, who who knows how Russia might eventually respond. So a former senior Ukrainian intelligence official told the Washington Post in an interview that the, the that the denial of Ukraine's support for these groups was only public and that Kiev was seeking to expand its support for the militias. Some of Ukraine's Western backers may view supporting the groups as problematic because of the fighters' neo-Nazi views and the risk of escalating to direct war with Moscow. So the Financial Times reported that this Russian volunteer corps, they were the first ones really to speak with them. And, and uh, again, their leader, Nikitin, Kaputskin, whatever his name is, he told Financial Times right after that raid that they were armed with American military equipment. And then he changed his story in interviews with other media outlets. But it's basically, you know, it's been confirmed uh, that U.S. armored vehicles and NATO rifles and other NATO equipment was used in that attack. All right. The next one here, Blinken meets with Chinese President Xi in Beijing. So this article is from the South China Morning Post. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's landmark trip to China ended on Monday with a commitment from both countries to try to stabilize ties to prevent their intensifying rivalry from de descending into conflict. So the closely watched two-day visit wrapped up with a meeting between Blinken and Chinese President Xi Jinping, who told the visiting diplomat that the world needed a stable U.S.-China relationship and that the two countries should handle ties with a sense of responsibility. She said, quote, whether China and the U.S. can get along correctly has a bearing on the future and the destiny of humankind, end quote. Um, so that was kind of the message that Blinken departed on is that we should try to improve relations or, you know, that's what the Chinese side was saying. And it was all about we got to keep up communication. But he didn't get any commitments to, you know, restart these military channels that that have been suspended. And a big part of the reason why, I think, is because the U.S. is still refusing to lift sanctions on uh, China's defense minister. Um, so she told Blinken that the rivalry between great powers could not solve problems in the United States or challenges facing the world, and the two powers should seek to respect each other's interests. He said, quote, China respects the interests of the United States and will not challenge or replace the United States. Similarly, the United States must also respect China and not harm China's legitimate interests and rights. Neither party can shape the other according to its own wishes, let alone deprive the other of its legitimate right to development, end quote. So the Chinese leader said that countries around the world had aired concerns over worsening U.S.-China ties. Um, so, and another thing, you know, that was made clear to Blinken while he was there in all the meetings with uh, Wang Yi, who's Xi's top foreign policy advisor, and Qin Gang, who's the Chinese foreign minister, 
you know, they all said, you know, Taiwan is a red line is basically what they told him. Um, and, you know, while while Blinken was there, he did a press conference and Blinken said that the U.S. does not support Taiwanese independence, which is, you know, longstanding U.S. policy going back decades. That's nothing new. That's been every administration's policy since, um, you know, 1979, at least when it was formalized. But that clip went viral online and, you know, all these stupid people that don't understand, you know, the U.S.-China relationship and the situation over Taiwan saying that Blinken was, you know, capitulating to the Chinese or that he gave them the green light to invade Taiwan. Just complete nonsense. You know, I was just surprised how how many people don't know anything about this policy and are ready to get all whipped up into a frenzy about uh, Taiwan. Um, so. You know, again, it's good, I think, that the two sides are talking, uh, but, you know, we're not really seeing anything concrete yet uh, coming out of this dialogue. It's more just like, yeah, we're going to keep talking is what they keep saying, what they keep agreeing to. Um, except for the militaries, because, again, the, the sanctions seem to be the main obstacle there. All right, the next one here, Taiwanese analysts to join U.S.-Japan-Taiwan Strait war game. Taiwanese military experts will join U.S. and Japanese analysts in conducting war game simulations for a possible conflict with China in the Taiwan Strait. So this will mark the first time that Taiwanese analysts join the tabletop exercises, demonstrating the increasing preparations for war in the region. The event will be hosted in Tokyo by the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies, which is a semi-official think tank. So the uh, the South China Morning Post quoted Su Zhu Yun, who is a senior analyst for the Institute for the National Defense and Security Research, which is a government think tank in Taiwan. Uh, Su said, quote, this is the first time experts from Taiwan will work with their U.S. and Japanese counterparts on tabletop simulations. Participants are also expected to analyze military scenarios in the Taiwan Strait and the East China and South China Seas to come up with proposals on how, how the blue team could deal with threats from the red team, end quote. So the red team is China's People's Liberation Army on one side, and then the blue team is the U.S., Taiwan, and Japan on the other side. And Sue said that the simulations do not necessarily mean that war is coming. Rather, they are risk management. So both U.S. and Japanese think tanks have recently conducted tabletop war games to simulate a conflict over Taiwan the think tanks typically conclude that the U.S. and Japan can stop China from taking Taiwan, but will take heavy, very heavy losses. But, you know, with these war games, it's not clear how accurate they are. And I don't think it doesn't seem like they take the risk of nuclear escalation into account because, you know, they do these war games a lot. And, and that, you know, it's definitely a risk. There's definitely a certain percentage of, uh, you know, how risky it is that a nuclear war would break out over Taiwan, but it seems like they never really, it's never a result of the war games or they never even really discuss it. And, you know, China Hawks in Washington never discuss the risk of nuclear war either. It's like, it doesn't exist when it comes to China. Um, so I don't know who knows if they're even really thinking about that or just assuming that maybe they're just assuming it won't happen. All right, uh, the next one here, large Israeli raid in Janine kills five Palestinians. 
to a large Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin on Monday morning has killed at least five Palestinians and wounded 91, with 18 in critical condition. So the Palestinian health ministry uh, named the people killed. Uh, it was a 21-year-old, a 15-year-old was killed, a 29-year-old, a 21-year-old, and the identity of the fifth victim is not yet known. The Palestinian health ministry also reported that a 15-year-old girl was shot in the head by Israeli forces and was transferred to the Janine government hospital. At least eight Israeli soldiers were reportedly wounded, some of them seriously. Uh, Janine has been a regular target of Israeli assaults in the West Bank over the last year. So the raid started early on Monday when a large number of Israeli forces stormed the city in the northern West Bank, deploying snipers on some houses and violent confrontation broke out in several areas, during which soldiers fired live bullets, stun grenades, and tear gas, and attack helicopters were used. So apparently this is the first time that an attack helicopter was used. Uh, they, they have Apaches, the Israeli army, the, the uh, U.S. made Apaches. And it's the first time one of them was used since the early 2000s, uh, you know, in over 20 years in a, in a raid in the West Bank. So a pretty big escalation. And the declared aim of the raid was to arrest 36-year-old Hamas activist Assam Abu al Haija from the Jabriat neighborhood in the outskirts of Jenin. After his arrest and the withdrawal of the military vehicles, Palestinian fighters detonated an explosive device under the military jeeps, which wounded Israeli soldiers. Um, so, yeah, again, you know, these raids just keep keep happening. Uh, and again, this seems like a big escalation with the, the helicopter being used. And I think there might be they're still counting casualties There might might have been more. Uh, people that were killed. Um, all right, the next one here. The U.S. rehearses docking a nuclear-armed submarine in South Korea. So the arrival of a large U.S. nuclear-powered submarine in South Korea was a dress rehearsal for the docking of a nuclear-armed submarine. This is from a report from Nikkei Asia. So the guided missile submarine USS Michigan docked in Busan on Friday. So the Michigan was initially commissioned in the 1980s as a ballistic missile submarine that was armed with nuclear warheads, but it was converted into a guided missile submarine that is armed now armed with Tomahawk cruise missiles. So it's nuclear powered, but it is not nuclear armed anymore. So the arrival of the Michigan in South Korea came a few months after President Biden and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol announced that the U.S. would deploy a nuclear-armed submarine to the Korean Peninsula. So a U.S. Navy official said that that's still going to happen. This wasn't the submarine deployment that they were talking about. So the official pointed to a joint declaration that was issued by Biden and Yoon when the South Korean leader visited Washington in April. The declaration reads, quote, Going forward, the United States will further enhance the regular visibility of strategic assets to the Korean Peninsula as evidenced by the upcoming visit of a U.S. nuclear ballistic missile submarine to the Republic of Korea, end quote. And that official said that that is a reference to an SSBN, which is a ballistic missile submarine, which are armed with nuclear weapons. And this deployment marks the first time since 1981 that a nuclear-armed U.S. submarine will visit the Korean Peninsula. We're not sure exactly when that's going to happen, but I would guess, you know, sometime this year. 
Uh, so just because of the nature of U.S. nuclear armed submarines, they can be patrolling waters anywhere in the world and they carry long range missiles so they can hit North Korea. You know, they don't need to go to South Korea for any other purpose than than as a provocation. That's the only reason why they're doing it. it you know, from a strategic standpoint, it doesn't offer any advantages. It's just a provocation. It's just to send a message. It's just to, to keep tensions high on the Korean Peninsula. And it just seems like that is the only purpose of this. Uh, all right. So the next one, the last news story here, the FBI groomed a 16-year-old to become a terrorist. So this is from The Intercept. And this is a story about how the FBI groomed a 16-year-old with brain development issues to become a terrorist. So basically, uh, this 16-year-old, well, actually, he's 18. He was just arrested. Um, Matteo Ventura, uh, he was from Wakefield, Massachusetts, and he had brain uh, development issues. He was bullied in school and he was homeschooled and an FBI agent befriended him on the Internet and got him to send him money, you know, very small amounts of money. They said that he was sending him gift cards worth twenty five dollars um, and they were trying to get him to agree to travel to the Islamic state, I guess, go to Syria or Iraq, wherever, you know, they even really have a foothold now. And, you know, according to the, this intercept report, he wasn't, he was making excuses for not going and they still arrested him. And, uh, they said there was a hint that he appeared to be ready to, to turn in his purported ISIS contact to the FBI. So just complete entrapment for this kid, this poor kid, who's now arrested and could face prison time for being a terrorist. Uh, but there's so many cases like this. You know, the FBI has done this so much since since 9-11. Um, this just seems to be a real blatant example of uh, the kind of things that they do. All right, that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Galen Carpenter, U.S. hypocrisy about the Chinese spy base in Cuba. Uh, we have one from Ron Paul. We need a peace president. One from Morton H. Halperin. My reflections on Dan Ellsberg, who helped end a tragic war. That's over at Responsible Statecraft. We have one from Robert Blumen. Was Philip Cross an AI? And our uh, spotlight is from Jim Bovard. Daniel Ellsberg's courageous work remains unfinished. That's over at the Libertarian Institute. Definitely go give that a read. Uh, but that's everything for me for today. Um, you could always help us out, antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe to this show on YouTube or Odyssey, Rumble, wherever you watch. Uh, leave a review if you listen to the podcast, to the audio version. Um, you know, Follow me on Twitter at TheCampDave. Follow antiwar.com on Twitter. It's at antiwar.com. Um, Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, all that stuff is good to do. Uh, but that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>